All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Infinite Expansion Podcast brought to you by The Last American Vagabond. I'm going to be your host, Tim. And so happy to finally be podcasting again. Uh, it's been, I know, probably a couple of weeks since I've podcast, been kind of busy. But um, I'm back now, and I'm actually really excited about the show today. Um, it's a topic that I've been thinking about for a while, but um, a topic that I recently really got into and that topic is free market anti-capitalism. So that'll be the discussion point today. And I know that sounds contradictory to many people because they think, okay, free market and capitalism are the same thing. But it really depends upon how you look at these terms. Uh, many of us look at capitalism in two, two, two different ways. The left might view it in one way, where the right views it in another, um, as well as socialism, government, anarchism. So... To discuss this topic, I brought on someone that I had met in Anarchopoco. Um, this is like the fifth guest I've brought on from Anarchopoco that I met. But uh, I wanted to bring on Keith Preston, and he'll tell you a little bit about his credentials. But um, yeah, I, want, I wanted to bring Keith on to discuss this idea of free market uh, anti-capitalism. So before we start, Keith, um, maybe just give people a brief kind of idea about your background, uh, and some of the credentials you have for this subject? Um, well, uh, I've been an anarchist for about 30 years, roughly all of my adult life. Um, early on as an anarchist, I was part of the hard left anarchist. I used to belong to the IWW. I belonged to a group called the uh, International Workers Association, which is the uh, an anarcho-syndicalist international. It's the one that was involved in the Spanish Civil War back in the 1930s. Uh, and I was a pretty much in the vein of thinkers like Noam Chomsky and Murray Rothbard and all of these well-known left anarchist thinkers. Uh, so I absorbed all of that stuff uh, back in the uh, 80s, maybe 25, 30 years ago. And then from there, I also became interested in libertarianism. I was interested in some of the anti-state ideas that you find in libertarianism. So I became uh, interested in anarcho-capitalism and all of those kinds of things. And thinkers like uh, Murray Rothbard and, and David Friedman and Marceline Tandahill and uh, a lot of others in that ilk. So um, I started studying that as well. And over time, it came, uh, I came to realize that both points of view were making somewhat similar arguments, but from a different perspective. For left-type anarchists, the, the real issue is capitalism. You know, they see the system of what they consider to be capitalist exploitation to be the real problem, You know, the, the, a system of rule by uh, economic elites, by corporations that were in a feudal society, by feudal landholders. And they see the state as an instrument of class power. Their, their thinking is very similar to that of the Marxist in the sense that the state is merely an instrument of class power. You have a dominant economic class in a particular society, and then the state will simply be a representation of the political interest of the dominant class. Uh, that's you know, more or less what someone like Noam Chomsky would probably tell you. Now, um, the um, other side of that, the uh, libertarian or voluntarist or anarcho-capitalist or agorist or individualist, point of view will say, well, the state is really the problem. They tend to look at it more from the point of view of individuals rather than classes. They look at it like the uh, the individual is, against, is pitted against the state. Murray um, uh, Rothbard had this idea of interpreting history of the struggle of liberty versus power. Uh, so they tend to look at it more that the you know, systems of um, oppression or, or social exploitation or whatever are directly traceable to the state, whereas uh, the, the left-type anarchist would say it's more a system of economic exploitation of which the state is a manifestation, whereas the 
the more uh, the market type anarchists tend, tend to say, well, economic exploitation is, is a product of the state, so it's really the state that's the fundamental problem. And I, I think both sides to this debate have a lot of useful insights. And um, so I was always interested in trying to combine these two ideas into a sort of kind of synthetic whole. Um, and I, I'm more of a political scientist or a, a sociologist or a historian than an economist. Um, so I, I tend to look at this um, less from the view, point of view of raw economic theory as more from uh, social sciences. Like I'm, I'm interested in elite theory. Uh, and elite, elite theory comes from both the left and the right. And it postulates how societies have elites of different types that tend to control institutions across the board. For example, a, a modern elite theorist would look at a society like the United States and say, well, you've got a, a ruling elite that controls major institutions like government, corporations, banks, the mass media, the major universities, foundations, all of these kinds of things. Uh, just like in a, in a feudal society, you might have an elite that cuts across the boundaries of the, the monarchy and the royal dynasties the landed aristocracy, the church, all of these kinds of things, the established theocratic church, like the Catholic church in Spain or France or somewhere like that, or, or the Church of England and, and in Britain. Um, so I, I tended to approach it more from that kind of sociological, social science perspective. But then I also started discovering uh, thinkers like uh, Kevin Carson and like David Graeber, uh, and there's a number of others in this vein um, who are heavily influenced by uh, a lot of old uh, classical anarchist or uh, old classical liberal thinkers like, uh, you know, like for example, this Henry George, this Pierre Joseph Verdon, uh, there's uh, William Green, Josiah Warren, uh, a lot of the mutualist thinkers, uh, a lot of the old syndicalist thinkers. Um, and this point of view basically combines these two frames of reference, this kind of, this idea of, of anti-capitalism from an anti-statist perspective on one hand and um, anti um anti-statism on the other hand, you know, um, anti-capitalism and anti-statism combined, you know, viewing all of these as part of the same ruling class functional apparatus. Uh, so that's more or less, you know, where I come from when it comes to economic theory. Now, most um, modern libertarians are either influenced by uh, neoclassical economics or by Austrian economics, like uh, probably if you took a poll of people who claim to be libertarians, they would tell you they were either influenced by Austrian economists like uh, Ludwig von Mises or Friedrich von Hayek or somebody like that, or maybe neoclassical thinkers like Milton Friedman. Uh, for example, Brian Kaplan, he's alone, an anarcho-capitalist economist who's more in the neoclassical vein. The people at the uh, Mises Institute, uh, they're more in the Austrian e economic vein. Um, whereas classical economics, though, like a, a lot of modern libertarians will cite um, thinkers like um, uh, Adam Smith as one of their forebears. But Adam, Adam Smith and other forms of classical economics like David Ricardo and some of that actually tended to analyze economics more from the point of view of classes. They understood that there really was a such thing as classes, social classes and economic classes, and that the relationship between classes and the relationship between classes and government really does matter. Um, that's an element that modern free market economics has kind of let fall by the wayside. And I think probably because that point of view, uh, you know, class analysis has been largely relegated to the Marxists. And I think a lot of free market type economists shy away from it because they think, oh, that's just Marxist stuff there, class conflict theory. Uh, but uh, classical economic economists, including those that were free market oriented, like uh, like Adam Smith would, would not have said that. They would have recognized the reality of classes and existence of classes and the relationship of, between states and classes. Yeah, that's uh, very good points. Because I myself, 
um, have I've always like felt on the left side where they sympathize more with labor. I've felt that you know connection to okay, you have an ownership class that is exploiting a labor class, and that's why we have such massive wealth inequality that is tremendous, that is enormous. Um, and I've always thought, well, and then I've, I've also had the same vein, well, okay, I see free markets as liberty, and I'm, I totally believe in free markets, but it always seemed like, well, how can in a free market um, the elite exploit labor so much? And, and I see many uh, free market advocates like they, they, they support these uh, institutions that have become uber wealthy, uh, but, but they don't, but I guess what I'm trying to say, yeah, they support them, but they don't realize that this isn't really a free market. They don't, they don't touch upon the aspects of the state that have been involved. Um, and so anyways, I wanted to get into the term free market anti-capitalists. Um, and I, I guess some other terms, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, this is often looked at as a mutualist type of, ideology or you could say left libertarian um, and I wanted to get into this term a little bit if you could describe what we mean by anti-capitalist and uh, or yeah anti you know, free market anti-capitalist well any term that you use like that is going to be loaded in some way uh, whether it's you know anarchist socialist capitalist anti-capitalist free market whatever but the idea behind free market anti-capitalism is that capitalism was commonly called capitalism and the free market are not the same thing. In fact, in some ways, they may be antithetical. Well, free market um, simply means exchange. It's just simply, it just simply means voluntary exchange. You know, I trade you, you know, five of my tomatoes for four of your potatoes. That's a free market. Um, now, uh, capitalism, it, it, when, when free market anti-capitalists talk about capitalism, they're not talking about uh, capitalism in the sense of just free exchange. A lot of libertarians types I've noticed use this term capitalism as sort of a synonym for free exchange. And that's not, historically, that's not what capitalism means. Uh, capitalism historically means an economic system where capital is commanding labor and where the accumulation of capital uh, affords someone the ability to command labor. So you're having a capital driven economy rather than a labor driven economy um, and consequently that creates a system where you have those who control capital who are able to um, direct labor by, by virtue of controlling capital just like in a feudal society in a traditional uh, European model feudal society you have a, um, a land owning class that controls land uh, you know, in pre-modern societies, wealth wasn't measured in terms of money. It was measured in terms of land. Money played a more peripheral role in older pre-modern agricultural societies. So in a society like feudal Europe, holding land is what makes you a wealthy person, right? But if you hold land, that gives you the ability or gave you the ability to control uh, labor. And in that case, it would have been the uh, agrarian peasant labor that, labor that actually worked this particular land and raised crops and livestock and all of that. Right? All right, modern capitalism works the same way, only instead of controlling land, it's a matter of control over capital uh, by, and by extension means of production, what the Marxists call means of production. That would include technology, uh, industrial facilities, uh, productive capacities, and that again, by, 
exercising control over that through control of capital, then you're able to command labor in the same way that a feudal lord is able to command peasant labor. So that's the that's one I, that's one of the reasons. That's it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why I refer to modern systems of state capitalism as a kind of new manorial system. Now the big issue is why is uh, the holder of capital able to command labor in this particular way. Now, I think this is a problem that many libertarians and certainly free market conservative types uh, run into because they will argue that the ability of the capitalist to control capital and command labor is derivative solely of the market. They'll say, eh, you know, someone is successful on the market, for example, they accumulate wealth that allows them to invest in. Uh, further productive facilities and, and hire more people and command wage labor in that particular way. Now, what I'd say is no, that's not the whole story. We have to look at it in terms of what is the role of the state in this system of class relations. And if you look at the whole history of state intervention into the economy and into society in modern industrial societies, what we see is a system where the state repeatedly intervenes for the purpose of creating artificial forms of privilege outside of a market context for the holders of capital or for aspiring holders of capital. And there's a innumerable number of ways that that happens. Um, here, here's an example. Uh, this is based on a, what I'm talking about now. It's based on a debate I had recently with someone um, in 19th century America. Uh, among the capitalist class, so to speak, were uh, among the most prominent representatives were the railroad entrepreneurs, right? Uh, if we go back and we look at, at the development of the railroad system in the United States, and the railroad system is really the foundation and, and, and a large part of the development of the modern industrial system in the United States and in Europe as well. But if we look at the development of railroad systems, we see that those who were involved in the development of these railroad systems were always heavily interconnected with the state. You know, the state would um, provide capital for uh, what they call internal improvements. It, this is even mentioned in the U.S. Constitution as a reference to internal improvements. Well, what they're talking about is corporate welfare. They're talking about subsidies by the state to private interests for the sake of an economic and industrial development. Um, and this is all. This has gone on as long as there has been modern industrial societies. Um, also, uh, if you look at where railroad entrepreneurs got the land to build railroads, where did they get the land that the railroads are built on? Through export expropriation of the land of the original uh, uh, original inhabitants, which in, in North America would have been the Native American people. Uh, if you look at where did they get the capital for the uh, in development of these radio, uh, railroads, they got it from banks. Where did these banks come from? These banks were created by the government. They were issuing currency that was uh, based on a state monopoly over the production of currency. So at every step of the way in the development of modern industrial societies, we see that the state plays a role of intervening in the economy in order to create this class and assist this particular class that's engaged in the massive accumulation of capital. It works the same way in modern societies. You know, nowadays we have economies in the most advanced countries that are very technologically driven. All right. So what that means is that the state is intervening in part uh, in a wide variety of ways, but in a ways that benefit capitalist interests that are uh, rooted in technological production. 
uh, one is through intellectual property law. If there was no such thing as intellectual property law, then you couldn't have massive uh, uh, technological corporations like, say, Microsoft or entities like that. Um, an another is uh, another way involves subsidies to transportation. Uh, subsidies to transportation systems have the effect of underwriting shipping costs. That allows large uh, national chains like, say, Walmart to undercut uh, smaller, more localized competitors. So these are a lot of different ways. Of, uh, and I've just given a couple of examples. We can go on and on and on and on and on. But these are different ways in which the state intervenes in the economy that has the effect of organizing the marketplace in a way that's beneficial to the holders of capital. Yeah, I um, actually let's touch a little bit. Let's go a little further into detail there. I really like that subject because it's something that's it's not talked about a lot, uh, especially amongst free market thinkers. And I agree with a lot of them on many things, but we can't ignore some of these other aspects. Um, I wanted to touch on two things. One, could you explain a little bit how capitalism emerged from the feudal times? From what I've, from my understanding, is that a free, a real free market of individual craftsmen was really starting to thrive around the middle, somewhere in the Middle Ages, and it kind of put the feudal lords on the defensive. And in order to maintain their elite status. They use this mechanism we refer to now as capitalism to basically kind of impose rents upon the peasant class and kind of hoard everyone into into wage labor and kind of into kind of into city life. Uh, could you maybe explain how capitalism emerged uh, and it kind of almost led to the industrial revolution, how it emerged from feudal times, and then after that we can go into I want to go into a few more of the mechanisms that the that the capitalist class merged with the state uh, class used to rig the markets? Yeah, sure. Um, in the Middle Ages in Europe, you started to see the growth of the um, market economy through the um, growth of things like the merchant fairs and things like that. Um, one of the reasons why capitalism or the Industrial Revolution developed first in Europe had to do with the fact that Europe became, developed an economic system that was much more trade and exchange oriented. Uh, it was less uh, static in terms of its uh, methods of production, uh, say than what you would find in uh, what you would have found in Eastern Europe or in Asia. Um, but the what happened was that you started to see the growth of the market economy through uh, more extensive trade routes and that kind of thing. You saw the growth of this craftsman artisan class as a result of that. You saw the proliferation of all of these uh, free cities within the wider feudal framework, uh, and these were basically little, you know, trade hubs, you know, um, kind of like um, similar to somewhere like Monaco or somewhere like that today, you know, where it's kind of a it's kind of a micro state that's not really a, a conventional state or certainly not a major power, but it's sort of a center of commercial activity. You started to see those rise up in Europe in the High Middle Ages, early Renaissance period. And what happened along the way is that the um, the aristocracy, the traditional landholding class, moved to suppress this, and, and they did this in a variety of ways. One was through the use of enclosure. Uh, in, in England, for example, uh, capitalism, by the way, developed you know along somewhat different lines in different parts of Europe. 
But in England, they, they used this thing called enclosure, which basically just meant running peasants off of their traditional lands and uh, essentially making uh, peasants into um, wage slaves of the, uh, of the landowning class. And it was during this time that you also started to see the growth of the factory system in the cities and peasants were being run off of their land. So they would go to the cities to get jobs in these newly emerging factories. And that's how the whole urbanization process really began to expand in Europe. That's how the factory system began to develop. That's how what the Marxists called the um, proletarian class began to develop is because you had these mass armies of the unemployed, you know, moving from the countryside to the urban centers, trying to get jobs in these new factories because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And that pretty much left them at the mercy of the factory holders. I mean, keep in mind, if you worked in a factory in early uh, in the early 19th century, the late 19th century in, in Britain or anywhere in Europe, you know, it's not like working for the UAW today where you make $35 an hour, you know, comprehensive health and benefits. We're talking about working conditions where people work 15 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, inside an, uh, a furnace-driven facility where it's, there's no ventilation and it's permanently 110 degrees inside, you know, where you had child labor. All of the, if you go back and read Dr. Charles Dickens and, and all those you know, writers that, uh, that criticized this back in the 19th century, you see that this is what uh, the system was. But what happened along the way is that the uh, elite classes in a number of uh, European states were able to essentially reinvent themselves uh, from a feudal class to an, uh, to a capitalist class. You know, the, as the Industrial Revolution and the technological and economic changes associated with the Industrial Revolution happened, the, uh, there was a, a kind of transformation among the elite from this feudal aristocracy to this new capitalist class. Now, in, in Britain in particular, you had a system where the um, it, it was a smoother, it was a fairly smooth transition in the sense that you did have this uh, traditional elite that reinvented itself, this feudal elite that reinvented itself as a capitalist class. Now, in France, it was a little bit messier. In France, you actually had the rise of a middle class that was uh, in conflict with the traditional aristocracy. That's why, the, in part, why the uh, French Revolution was so bloody, because that really was a real class war, I mean, a real class civil war. Um, now, one of the reasons I think that the uh, England never had a revolution like that, you know, they, they had the Glorious Revolution, which was a pretty, you know, a pretty mellow revolution, comparatively speaking. But uh, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the transition from one class to another uh, was almost seamless. You know, you had the uh, feudal class simply transforming itself into a capitalist class, whereas in, in, in France, it was more the opposite. You had more of a traditional um, aristocracy being put out of power by this rising middle class and that's I think that's why the revolution got to be so bloody and that's the American Revolution was kind of in between those two revolutions uh, but the American Revolution was actually a, um, a revolution by what the Europeans would have called a middling class like all the founding fathers of the United States were not from the aristocracy they were not titled aristocrats and they were not a royalty um, they were from uh, what would, would have been called the gentry which is like the landowning class and the merchant class that is perhaps wealthy and successful, but not uh, not titled aristocrats. You know, like uh, you know, like someone like Thomas Jefferson, for example, he came about as close as people in, in uh, colonial America came to being uh, an aristocrat. But this that uh, that whole revolution, the American Revolution, was kind of a think of it as a revolution by the upper middle class against the elite. Interesting. Um, okay, yeah, I think, I think that's an important topic. Uh, to kind of understand where capitalism came about. Um, many, I, I think many people, they, they see companies doing the well, well, they were successful because they, uh, because of capitalism, but they don't understand the whole roots of kind of 
the markets have never really been that free. And when they were, they weren't producing this um, elite. They don't necessarily produce this elite class per se. Um, I want to talk about a couple other mechanisms that most people don't think about. I know you touched on intellectual property. Um, you touched on a few other ones. I was wondering if a couple other maybe um, mechanisms you could explain that we don't often think about as state um, state mechanisms, but really these mechanisms are inhibiting the real free market from coming about. Okay. Um, well, there's a wide range of state-imposed um, policies. I mean, they're really too numerous to name that have this impact of restricting the market. Um, one is the money monopoly. Um, well, you know, I know there's a lot of people in libertarian circles who like to criticize central, uh, central banking, uh, and rightfully so, because what that does is that uh, that actually constricts the money supply to inflate the cost of, uh, of credit, and that in turn makes entrepreneurship uh, and economic self-sufficiency a lot more difficult in a lot of different ways. Uh, patent laws, th those have a, um, a very similar effect to uh, um, intellectual property law in the sense that they are designed to create monopolies over the production of particular products and marketing of those products. That tends to raise the prices of those particular products, which creates ex uh, extra profits for uh, those who monopolize those particular markets. Uh, corporate welfare is probably one of the most obvious examples. I mean, there's a wide range of industry, um, industrial um, entities that are heavily subsidized by the state. I mean, there, there's probably not a major industry in the United States, for example, that's not heavily intertwined with the government in some particular way. Um, like if we look at companies like uh, a lot of the really big uh, communications and technologies companies, like, take a company like General Electric, for example. All right, well, General Electric primarily uh, generated its, its wealth as a corporation by producing communications equipment for the military. So this is essentially, this is, uh, that company is essentially a, a branch of the military industrial complex. Um, if we look at oil uh, production, the petroleum production uh, in the United States, as well as outside the United States, uh, where did the oil industry in the United States get its wealth from? Well, it got, first of all, they had to have the land, for example, where did they get the land? Usually they got the land through uh, government land grants and things of that nature. Uh, and as well as, as then, and then there's also the uh, monopoly over the Middle Eastern trade in oil that they're able to maintain largely through U.S. military intervention and the American propping up the government of Saudi Arabia, which is a really, really reactionary feudal model government. I mean, you want to know what you know, classical feudalism or even pre-feudalism is, go to Saudi Arabia and you'll see it. Uh, very, very uh, archaic system they have there. But um, we could talk also about, uh, I mentioned subsidies to transportation. That's important. Um, um, in the ways in which tariff laws can be set up, tariff laws can be set up in such a way as to protect um, particular industries from competition, not just international competition, but also localized competition. Um, a lot of occupational licensing laws are set up in this way. Uh, virtually every occupation there is nowadays, you have to have some kind of license for it. I mean, whether it's to, you know, shine shoes or, uh, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a nail tech. She actually, you know, she does uh, manicures and stuff like that. And she was telling me about all the professional licensing and training she had to go through to, to you know, paint people's fingernails. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, I asked her, I said, what the, what the hell was the rationale behind that? And she said, well, supposedly it's a health thing. You know, you might prick somebody and give them an infection or something. Oh, yeah, right. You know, but uh, yeah, I just want to interject for one second because um, I'm totally a believer in this. But I want to. So some people will say, well, if we don't, if people don't have expertise and we don't 
know they can do, well, that's going to lead to fraud and whatever. And um, But what I'm saying is, and what I'm sure you would agree with is, the free market is going to make people become good at their jobs. And I would imagine that there would be some type of system similar to Yelp or uh, where people, yeah, you have to, you probably will need to get degrees, like for, for example, like a doctor. Yeah, people will probably want, through the free market, not even through mandatory, want you to get some type of degree or, some, or, or have some type of system where people approve of what you're doing and, and recommend you. Um, so it's not to say that it's, it's, it's uh, a bad thing, that like people don't need to go get education and, and get some knowledge on what they're doing. That's totally important. But a state-mandated uh, system where people are forced to go through all these different regulations and, and licensing requirements seems to create an artificial scarcity uh, in the market and lead to kind of big institutions. What would you kind of – is that a fair assessment? Yeah, well, occupational licensing is one of those things that leads to monopolies. Uh, it's intended for that purpose, in my view, to, to create monopolies by established in, interests um, in particular uh, professions and occupations. One particular interesting way to look at this question is uh, from the perspective of race. Um, there's a really uh, good book that was published back in the early 80s called The State Against Blacks by a uh, an economist named uh, Walter Williams, and he talks goes into a lot of details about how a lot of uh, occupational licensing um, was created in part to keep blacks out of particular industries. And this we're talking about, you know, many many decades ago. But the idea was to keep um, a monopoly going for established interests by eliminating the people who could participate in that particular type of industry. Uh, yeah, so there's a whole lot of uh, overlap between these kinds of things and things like racism as well. Um, also, we could um, go and look at uh, a lot of other ways besides occupational licensing. Uh, land use regulations are another one. Uh, and this has a similar effect to, um, to occupational licensing in the sense that um, if, you, if you've ever examined the codes of city and county governments that govern the use of land, zoning and land use regulation, you see, it's amazing how restrictive some of this is. You know, like some places you're not allowed to have gardens. You know, some places you're not allowed to have more than a certain number of cars in your on your driveway or yard. You know, or you can't your grass can't be but so high. Um, also, and this this applies to things like rental housing. Like one thing that I used to be involved in uh, back in the 1990s in the city I live in was some municipal activism around local issues pertaining to housing and things like that. And what I found was that a lot of the housing code was set up and a lot of zoning regulations were set up to constrict the supply of housing, which turned, in turn made housing uh, more expensive, but it also made it more profitable for established landlords and real estate developers and people like that. For example, they'll have laws that there can't be but so many housing units in a building, in a department building. You know, like you can't have more than, say, 12 unit, apartment units in a particular apartment building. Uh, or um, you, you see uh, property upkeep laws where, you know, you can't have uh, things like uh, you can't have a garden in your yard or you can't have uh, certain things stored in, 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 uh, on residential property. And I'm not talking about safety things you know, like explosives or something like that. I'm talking about things that are, that are more benign. But if you look at how all of these things interact with one another, what you see is that it's designed to artificially inflate real estate values, to raise the 
cost of, uh, of the value of real estate for established homeowner associations and civic associations of real estate developers at the uh, expense of poor landowners or smaller landowners or people who do not own land, people who rent, who live in rental housing. Um, business regulations are example, particularly regulations over smaller business. I know many years ago I helped a friend of mine open up place that was like a restaurant and a bar and it was unbelievable the kinds of regulations that you had to comply with just to open what was a relatively small place that served you know basic foods and beverages and things like that it's just unbelievable that you know you had to go through this you know i had this stack of books governing you know uh listing all of the regulations you had to deal with uh in this particular context so all of these things collectively you know and i and I, the things i've described are just a drop in the bucket but all these things have the impact of creating this class system i'm talking about right when you combine all these aspects together and there's so many that we didn't even talk about like fictional legal infrastructure for corporate personhood uh limited liability yeah, oh, laws yeah. bankruptcy <laughs> laws um, you know, military intervention to access foreign markets, eminent domain, um, discriminatory taxation, and then we, we could go on and on. Um, there's one last one I wanted to talk about, um, and we don't, we don't have to go very in-depth into this. We can maybe even save this for another. This could be a whole podcast in itself, uh, but one area I've been looking at a lot lately is land and how to um, – you know how to classify land, but when you, if you're an anarchist and you need the state to enforce property rights, it seems that's kind of counterintuitive uh, because you're using the state to enforce your property rights. Now I'm for private property, but um, there are some problems sometimes with, um, you know, say someone is using the land and exploiting it, and it's affecting everyone around. Okay, well. You know, also like indigenous land. How does who? How does that work? Um, could you maybe touch on land a little bit? Um, I don't know if I did it really justice there, but just some of the ideas I've been uh, kicking around myself. Yeah, well, most modern libertarians, when it comes to land theory, they are implicitly uh, followers of John Locke, who, who had this idea that rightful ownership of land is based on um, occupation combined with or you know, homesteading combined with mixing your labor with that particular land. Uh, now, there is alternative theories, like there's one that's called usufructuary theories of land, and, um, which basically means that legitimate land ownership is based on a use, meaning that you know, you're not really entitled to possess more land than what you can personally use. Uh, there's also the Georgia's theory, uh, the followers of Henry George have another point of view that argue that land is essentially a commons and that uh, land land rents are therefore uh, illegitimate, you know, unless it's some sort of payment to the wider community or something for the use of that particular land. But the when you, it's important, though, I, I don't know that the, the real issue there is which theory of land ownership rights you prefer. You know, I think I think reasonable people, including libertarian minded people, can can disagree on that. But I, I do think, though, that one problem that's often overlooked is the way that the, whole, that the distribution of land itself creates class societies. First of all, how do uh, landed interests get that particular land? Usually, if you trace it back far enough, you see some sort of original expropriation. Um, you know, for example, in the North American continent is the expropriation of all of the Native American nations to conquest. And if you go back to the earliest civilizations, you see that. You go back to the Sumerians and the Babylonians, you see the land has typically been acquired, uh, acquired through conquest. 
Um, the um, and, and then you have to also understand the way in which government monopolizes land. Um, in the United States, probably the, a third of all land is actually controlled by the state. Um, it, you also have to look at land grants, the ways in which uh, corporations are granted uh, use of particular land. You mentioned eminent domain earlier. Um, it's interesting to look at how a lot of Walmart stores get started. Uh, what they'll typically do is um, they will often be given a land grant by a local government who want to have a local Walmart store for whatever reason. Um, they think it creates jobs or whatever, but often a Walmart store will be given a land grant to build a store on, to build a parking lot on. And where does this land come from? Well, usually it's taken from someone else by means of eminent domain. You know, where the state simply comes in, confiscates land, and gives it to someone else. Um, and that, uh, you know, that's a really a fundamental way in which uh, land is acquired in, in mainstream, you know, American-style capitalist economies. In fact, that's even come up in the presidential campaign recently. Somebody asked Donald Trump what he thought of the eminent domain, and he said, oh, I think it's wonderful, yeah, something <laughs> like that. And, and he, he, I'm sure he does, because the, the businesses that he, is, he owns have benefited quite a bit from eminent domain. I mean, he's a uh, he's a crony capitalist or a state capitalist, if ever there was one. Um, so, yeah, so there's many different ways in which land monopolies are created by means of the state where land expropriation takes place at the hands of the state. And that, again, again is one of these things that creates this kind of class society. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, again, something I don't think we're talking about uh, enough. And I even I've seen that, you know. I feel like anarchists, certain anarcho-capitalists, they know this, uh, and they actually, Rothbard seemed to have write about this, how he, you know, how a lot of land was um, taken from people, and but I don't feel like we, they, we, we um, touch on this point enough, because that point kind of can bridge the left into this, this conversation, and we can actually agree on some things uh, if we articulate that point more i don't think that we articulate that enough um one and so i wanted to touch on um lot, uh, two subjects before i finish here um and one was the labor theory of value and um from my understanding and you can elaborate on this or correct me that the labor theory of value you know i it seemed to derive not as a mandatory like all like like not as a mandatory principle but okay if a bunch of people subjectively want to charge something in a competitive market well okay well if i'm char if i want to charge this and i have the freedom to charge whatever i want but this guy wants to do it at eight well if i'm well eventually prices seem to lower in a long-term trend in a competitive market towards close to the value of labor it's not to say they equal the value of labor but they tend to lower until they're close to what someone will will do for their labor. Um, can you maybe explain this concept of the labor theory of value as more of a long-term trend in free markets, so kind of a product of free markets, as opposed to a mandatory distinction of value? Maybe uh, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, well, the labor theory of value is derivative of classical economics. A lot of people think it was invented by Karl Marx, but that's not the case. Uh, it was actually was derived from David Ricardo, who was a classical economist in the vein of Adam Smith and some of those people. And then Marx uh, appropriated the idea and incorporated it into his system. 
But the labor theory of value is the idea that the value of a commodity is rooted in the amount of labor that it takes to produce that commodity. Um, for example, an automobile. Right? An automobile um, is worth the amount of labor that it takes to make that automobile, the amount of time, the amount of skill, and the, the all, ranging from working on the assembly line to uh, drawing up the blueprints for that automobile. Now, where this creates uh, controversy is uh, many modern libertarian economists tend to hold to the uh, subjective theory of value. And this is an idea that was developed by the Austrian uh, economic school about a century ago by thinkers like Augen von Berwick and, and others. And their idea is that va the value of a commodity is determined simply by how much people want it. They, they look at it more from a consumer perspective. What is the consumer demand? For this particular uh, product, for example, what is the uh, how many people want this automobile? You know, what are they willing to pay for it? Um, but the um, the labor theory of value will argue that first people have to be willing to invest their labor in this particular product, in the development of this particular product, for it to be even be available uh, on the market in the first place. Uh, an, an example might be um, if uh, let's say that you you want me to pay you you as a consumer want me to paint your house for you and you're going to give me $2,500 to paint your house for you and it's estimated it's going to take about two weeks all right well I may decide as the one whose labor is going to go into painting your house I may decide that that's just not you know that that, that $2,000 or $2,500 is not worth uh, my time and labor you know I might decide I want to take that time and labor and, and go go to the beach for two weeks or something like that uh, so, um, but the idea is that if over time, minus interference from external forces, the, uh, the rate of pricing commodities is set according to the exchange rate determined by producer on one hand and consumer on the other hand, then yes, over time prices will fall to the point where the consumer price, that is the, you know, the subjective value that's consigned to a particular product by a consumer matches that which the um, the producer, the person whose labor goes into the production of that commodity, assigns to their own labor. You know, and, and when we say labor, that's a somewhat subjective term because it means it means uh, the resources that go into the development of, of commodities, it means the time and the physical energy as well. So all of that just figures into what we call labor. And it's and it's the argument is that those two things match eventually. Yeah, because I kind of see it like, okay, say we have like four people, and I might want to subjectively charge a hundred bucks, but this guy charges eighty, whatever, and say another guy wants to charge fifty. Well, if I'm going to compete in that market, uh, and this, and this guy is going to charge only fifty for his labor, well, I it would seem that my, I would have to start charging lower. Uh, to the kind of the objective, but what the, the the objective value of labor that most people are willing to accept for that, um, I would have to lower my price. I can't just make a huge profit when other guys were doing that labor for much cheaper. That mm -hmm. over time, I'm going to have to seem to lower my uh, price and fit this kind of more objective value that most people are doing. And I would refer to that kind of more as the labor value. Well, there's a certain point where no one's going to do the work because it's not worth the labor or time because they're not getting out what they put in. Uh, right. That kind of um, similar? 
Right, exactly. I mean, for example, let's say that uh, fast food restaurants were to offer people jobs for $2 an hour. Would they find any takers? You know, with, given what the present value of the dollar actually is in, Amer in the American economy, would there be anybody out there that would actually be willing to work for $2 an hour? That it would be very, very difficult to find that. I mean, even people who are unemployed uh, probably wouldn't be willing to accept a job making $2 an hour because their, their, their labor is worth more than that to them. Um, so that's an, that's an illustration. Um, but the, but the, but the car, one thing about Carson's work that's interesting, Kevin Carson, is that he tried to create a synthesis of the labor theory of value with the subjective theory of value and arguing that these two uh, ways of assigning value to productive um, activity and to commodities actually complement one another. They actually or can be synthesized and they can actually they match one another um, it, within a context of a free market exchange based on the cost principle. Minus intervention to create these various systems of privilege or whatever. No, I, I totally agree, and I I think you know, look, I can charge whatever I want, but I still I still operate in an objective marketplace where there's other people. So like like you had said, you might want to charge two dollars an hour, but it's not worth people's labor. But at the same time, I can't charge too much because another competitor will charge less, and so there seems to be an equilibrium balance, which. I would say is close to about the labor theory of value, roughly. It's not a it's not a set in stone thing, but it's it's okay. It's the market finding an equilibrium point, kind of close to labor. Yeah, um, yeah. And then free market anti capitalism argues that the state intervenes in the market in such a way as to create a market distortion that where labor is not receiving the full their, its full value in terms of compensation. That there's a certain value that's extracted from labor. That's what the Marxists call surplus value, and that's and that in turn creates this kind of uh, social stratification that you find under capitalism. Yeah, and it seems from what we've talked about that a lot of, that that uh, mechanism that they can use to exploit all seems to stem from state intervention uh, and takeover of land and resources. It's like they got all the chips in the beginning, and they've pretty much designed a way to keep all those chips ever since, uh, from my perspective, at least. Yeah, it, it's similar to a poker game where, you know, from the onset of the game, some people get three hands and others get two or others get one. You know, it's, uh, well, you know, how, how fair a game would that be? It, you know, the, the deck is stacked. Or if you have a, a poker game where one particular competitor is allowed to mark the cards, you know, that's... Uh, that's essentially how how what we call capitalism works. You know, it's it's not too far off when we uh, refer. We, there are some people who refer to the modern American economy as a type of casino capitalism because it really does kind of work the same way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, last question here before we wrap it up. Um, okay, and this one obviously we could spend a lot more time on this. So I don't think I'm super in depth, but can do you see? So moving forward, okay, because uh, I think if we're gonna, if we're really gonna bring about change, the radicals on the left and right need to unite. Um, I see like progressives, libertarians, anarchists, and, and pulling in all these non-voters by all by those three coming together. Can you see a system where uh, socialism? Um, I hate to use the word capitalism, but capitalism in the sense of a real free market. Uh, socialism in the sense of a worker-owned economy, 
uh, without state intervention. So an anarchist society where with both free markets and um, worker-owned economies. Can these coexist? Can we form this type of new system? Yeah, I mean, on a theoretical level, that's certainly possible. Now, the question is getting there from here, and I think that's where you run into a lot of problems because one thing that I find particularly disconcerting is that when I look at a lot of the debate that goes on between left and right anarchists and left and right uh, libertarians, I often feel like what I'm hearing is a back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. They argue the same about the same kinds of things extreme left and right uh, argue about, which I don't really think is appropriate in many ways. You know, they're, they're accusing each other of, oh, you communist, you capitalist, whatever. Uh, and they do this with social and cultural issues as well. Uh, so I think that that's getting past that kind of way of arguing or that way of thinking is, is very important. And I think that by recognizing some of these things, that might be a step forward in the sense that if we recognize the way in which the state intervenes in society to create the system of capitalism that leftists, that left anarchist and anarcho-communist and progressive criticize. And if we look at the ways in which the uh, corporate system and, and, and what's commonly called capitalism, the way in which that is the beneficiary of state intervention, which libertarians and even some conservatives are supposedly opposed to, what we can what we see then is, a, is certain areas where we have meeting points. You know, we see, for example, that there's no reason why corporate welfare should not be opposed by anarchists, by libertarians, by free market conservatives, and by progressives alike, uh, because you know every, all of those philosophies would claim to either be anti-corporation or anti-state. On the other hand, but this is something where the state is actually involved in the economy on behalf of corporations. So that's a common meeting point of all these kinds of philosophies. And I think once we start to explore these ideas, what we see is so many different ways in which the corporate system or the capitalist system overlaps with the state system. You know, we see that, you know, this isn't just a few things here and there. It's not just the Federal Reserve. It's not just, you know, the military industrial complex. Those are some of the more prominent examples. But we see this at every level of government. You know, I was talking about the ways in which local governments um, create uh, a system of class hierarchies and class monopolies and in industrial and uh, occupational monopolies through occupational licensing, through land use regulations, through zoning laws, all these kinds of things that happen just on a municipal level, just on a county level. And then we can look at that at every level of government, all the way up to the federal government, even on the international level with things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, NAFTA, all these kinds of things. Right? Every, every level throughout the entire economy, from the local level to the world uh, level, we see this kind of relationship that exists between economic elites on one hand and the political class on the other. And once we see that symbiotic, symbiotic relationship between the political class and economic elites, then we have a a foundation where radicals of all different types can actually criticize this entire system. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I almost like to refer to this, to our common bond as we're against the super state, which is the state and the elite, the private elite, mm -hmm. uh, who, who would not be elite without the state, uh, but they still use their private accumulation of wealth. Uh, it's, it's one and the other. They're, they're, they're two terms that cannot be separated. Uh, from each other, they, they're not they're they're mutually I guess exclusive, um, and so uh, yeah I agree I think the first step really is is uh, for us to 
to get past these linguistic barriers that divide us. Uh, we talking, we argue about capitalism, yet we don't understand that we have different perceptions of what the word even means. A lot of people don't even know the historical definition, or some on the left might not understand that that they mean totally free markets on the right. Uh, and people just argue back and forth. Yeah, we don't even have solid definitions of terms. And I right. think if we're ever even going to move forward, we got to get solid definition on terms, or at least, okay, understand where this person's coming from. Okay, I understand now his logic. Now I can, okay, I kind of agree with him. Then you know, I, we hold on to terms like I'm capitalist, and I'm never going to be. Uh, I'm never going to go from this, or I'm I'm a socialist, and I'm never going to remove from this label. But if we're ever going to move forward, we, we can't attach to labels. We got to find the ideological, uh, you know, bridges that we all share, like you had just talked about, that are beyond the terms. We're letting. I, I, it's like these these terms are getting in the way more than anything. I would love to just scrap all the terms and start purely on what we actually believe uh, in theory and stuff. And a lot of us, I think, share similar things, but we're letting these terms divide us completely. And so I think really this needs to be. Hopefully, something that we start talking about more and, and getting more uh, people writing about and discussing because we're not going to go anywhere if we just stay divided in our camps and we don't try to see the way in which the other side views terms. Yeah, well, I mean, if you belong to any social media outlet for anarchists or libertarians, you see that you know immediately every debate turns into a shit flinging contest between anarcho-capitalists and anarcho-communists and left and right libertarians and all of that. So it is a real problem. Uh, and I, do, I don't think it needs to be that way because there are so many of these areas where there are these commonalities. Um, one thing I would really recommend um, to listeners that aren't familiar with this is to examine the concept of elite theory. Like one place to start would be the Wikipedia entry for elite theory. Uh, that gives you a lot of uh, ideas of different authors that have examined this idea of um, exactly what Tim was talking about earlier, which is uh, the idea that there's the super state. You know, there's the political class per se, uh, like in the United States would be the presidency, the Congress and the, the state bureaucracies uh, and courts and all of that. And then you also have intertwined with that. You have the corporate infrastructure. You have the banking system. You have the military industrial complex. You have the mass media complex. You have the elite universities, elite foundations, you know, all of these different institutions that interlock with one another and create this ruling class apparatus. Uh, another uh, good bit of theory to look at is what's called new class theory, uh, talking about how in modern societies you have this bureaucratic class that's taken over a lot of institutions and uh, and a lot of uh, and it has this uh, technocratic function of trying to regulate society in all these different kinds of ways. Uh, there's a really interesting book that was written back in the 1930s that I'd recommend about some of this. It's called The Managerial Revolution by James Burnham, The Managerial Revolution. And this uh, book talked about how in modern societies, um, irrespective of what particular form of government they have, irrespective of what ideology they have. You know, the book was written in the 30s, but it was so it was looking at the different kinds of government that existed in the industrial societies of that time, which were. Uh, you know, capitalist nations like the United States and, and uh, other you know, liberal democratic nations like the Western European countries. It also looks at Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and Soviet Russia and says all of these systems have this kind of managerial bureaucracy that really forms the basis of their ruling class, you know, irrespective of what kind of state they have, irrespective of what kind of, um, of um, 
ideology they have. Uh, so if you look at new class theory, you look at elite theory, you look at managerial revolution theory, I think you'll start to get a lot of insights into what I'm talking about here, about how this, you know, these economic and political elites uh, work together in a way that mutually enforce, re reinforce one another. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to drop some links in the show notes uh, for people who want to take this a step further. I hope people do because we need more people um, you know, starting to look at these ideas, discuss these ideas, take these ideas farther. Um, and so I'm going to drop uh, some of the things Keith just talked about. Also, two articles that Keith wrote that really kind of inspired me and took my understanding to another level. I'm going to put those in the show notes. Also, an article that I wrote um, called uh, Bridging the Gap Between Anti-Statism and Anti-Capitalism Through uh, through dissecting the buzzwords that divide us, which basically is looking at the different terms that I talked about and how those divide us because we perceive them different. So definitely check those out and hopefully people will, again, expand upon those and we can take this, you know, we can start take, taking this further and, and not just arguing over little semantics that um, just because we perceive them different. So Keith, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Maybe we'll get on another time for some take some of these ideas further but i really uh, enjoyed the conversation yeah thanks for having me on it's a good conversation thank you well i hope people did learn something uh if you enjoyed this video please like or subscribe i'm gonna try to have some more content coming your way and uh check out the last american vagabond.com if you have not um thanks again and we'll see you soon